welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. Medieval history, but we want to make that um, bridge that divide by means of a consideration of the filioque, uh, which is the addition that was made to the Nicene Creed at the Third Council of Toledo in 589 AD. Um, the filioque means and the sun. And it builds on the Nicene Creed in, in regards to the procession of the Holy Spirit. And uh, as not only from the Father, but also from the Son. Now, this didn't really problem in terms of the unity of the church for some time. Uh, it was, especially in the West, it was regularly part of their, uh, of their creeds. It would state that the, the spirit is from the father and the son. And, and, uh, there are many places that they would, they would also use this, but, uh, eventually at some point, uh, it became that the, the Pope stated that you know, everybody needs to, needs to believe this and needs to use this um, definition. And that is when the great schism of the church in 1054 AD took place uh, between the, the East and the West. And this is something that, of course, has never been resolved. The, uh, one of the interesting things to note, however, is the historical use of these terms and really the historical formulation of the procession of the Holy Spirit uh, in the early church fathers. And so there are many places in which uh, the Holy Spirit is said in the early church fathers to, uh, to come from the Father. 
Uh, and then there are other places where the Holy Spirit is said to be from the, the Father and the Son. Um, but reading from Schaff and his, uh, his, he's actually quoting another doctor, Dr. Waterland, uh, who we might actually come back to next week, potentially, Lord willing. Uh, but he, he makes an important distinction about the early church fathers and, and their formulation of the procession of the Holy Spirit that is important for us to understand in how this gets built out into, you know, into the, the, the filioque clause and, and, um, and the schism. And then for us, who, of course, follow in the Western tradition. He states this, one thing is observable, though, that the ancients, appealed to by both parties, have often said that the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father without mentioning the Son. Absolutely happens. It happens all the time. Yet they never said that he proceeded from the Father alone. So that the modern Greeks have certainly innovated in that article, in expression at least, if not in real sense and meaning. As to the Latins, they have this to plead, that none of the ancients ever condemned their doctrine, that many of them have expressly asserted it, that the Oriental churches themselves rather condemn their taking upon them to add anything to a creed formed in a general council than the doctrine itself, that those Greek churches that charge their doctrine as heresy yet are forced to admit much the same thing, only in different words, and that scripture itself is plain, that the Holy Ghost proceeds at least by the Son if not from him, which yet amounts to the same thing. And uh, I, think that, I think that Waterland is, is right on this point. Uh, I think both he and Schaff really understand the early church fathers well. Uh, both are eminent historians of the early church. And there were many of the early church fathers, like Cyril of Alexandria, and many others as well, uh, that would state that the Holy Spirit is from the Father, or also say that the, that the Holy Spirit is from the Father through the Son. And, but they, they, those, that are, are, those are completely compatible statements. Uh, and so I think that we are right here in, in the West and in our understanding that the, the Holy Spirit does come from the Father and the Son, proceeds from the Father and the Son. Um, and Yet, I would state that my preference is that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son. I think that that is uh, the most faithful way to describe the procession of the Holy Spirit. Well, a lot of the early medieval theologians were involved in this controversy. Um, and, uh, and Anselm of Canterbury is the first medieval theologian that we will take up. And uh, the Pope at the time entreated him to write on this topic against the Greeks. He, uh, he came up with an interesting book that uh, I've read a considerable amount of Anselm. I've actually not read this particular work, um, simply called The Procession of the Holy Spirit. And it's. Um, I think it's Russell. No, is it Russell Friedman? No, um, it's Kerr, I believe. No, am I getting his name a little bit wrong? N Nell, yeah, K-N-E-L-L. -E um, several of the insights I will offer to you today come from, come from him. 
and his overview of, of especially the doctrine of the Holy Spirit within the medieval times. Um, he remarks that actually Anselm's treatise, who is in, in many other ways is such an, an important theologian, um, he wrote the Monologian, the uh, Proslogian, and, and, and those, those are both seminal works, and yet he, he stumbled to some degree in his, not in, not in that he was wrong in his defense of the West's view of the procession of the Holy Spirit, but he simply did not prove that doctrine terribly well in his, in his book. But reading from a, a brief quote from the monologian, uh, mono, mono, uh, he states, what, del what delight to gaze upon what is proper to father and son and what they have in common. And nothing gives me more delight in contemplation than their mutual love. So what is he doing? Well, he is stating, and this becomes something that, that is very well understood and prominent in the medieval theologians, that the Holy Spirit, uh, drawing from Augustine, is the love between the Father and the Son. He is that which is common to them. From Anselm of, um, of Canterbury, who is by far a, uh, you know, one of the leading theologians of medieval times, as well as one of the earliest ones, we move to somebody who is not as well known, but perhaps did a better job on this topic, and that's Anselm of Havelberg. Now you've got, whoa, there's more than one Anselm? That's a strange, you know, that, that's a strange name. Actually, there's, there's, there's at least three Anselms. Uh, you know, these, these two aren't the only ones. But Anselm of Havelberg um, was, did a little better in, in demonstrating the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and defending that procession of the Spirit from Father and Son. And he stated quite openly that the Holy Spirit creates the unity of the Trinity. And in fact, he could call um, as one of the attributes of the Holy Spirit in his eternal relation to the Father and the Son. He could refer to the Holy Spirit as the connection between them, communion, concord, love, sweetness, and holiness. Uh, he states, and perhaps for that very reason, the Holy Spirit alone is rightly called the Holy Spirit, since by his breath, he joins both members of the Godhead and in himself connects them in one essence, unity in Trinity and Trinity in unity, ineffably distinguished and wonderfully conjoined. Uh, one of the ways in which Anselm of Havelberg demonstrated that the Holy Spirit was from both Father and the Son was actually by way of an analogy that we find in the book of Genesis. And, and we'll get into this when we start to develop some of our triads in scripture. Um, as, as far as some of the ones that lie in Genesis, I don't know if we'll touch on this one in particular, but he actually demonstrated this doctrine from the birth of Abel from Adam and Eve. Okay? He demonstrated that the Holy Spirit proceeded from father and son, both by drawing from the birth of Abel from Adam and Eve. Now, of course, you're wondering, why not Cain? Well, there's some bad things going on with Cain, right? <laughs> so he, he didn't use Cain. Uh, he, he could have used Seth. And in fact, a lot of the early church fathers and medieval theologians did use uh, uh, Seth. But um, 
And of course, there's some, there, there are some potential issues with that analogy. Of course, if you're using an analogy of birth, then you know, you're sort of mixing the means of procession because, uh, or, or because it's the Son who is begotten, right? And not, not, not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, Spirit proceeds or emanates or is breathed out. He's not for God. So there's, you know, does the analogy really work? But, but he, he argues, and it's an interesting, interesting proof that, you know, just as Adam and Eve then together brought forth Abel, in this case, so too the Father and the Son together brought forth the Holy Spirit. Of course, not in time, right? Eternally. What is interesting, though, is the question of, in that analogy, is there a, there's certainly a primacy to Adam, because, you know, Eve comes from Adam in the creation account, and so that, that works well with, with the analogy. Um, but the question is, does the Holy Spirit come from the Father in a particular or a primary way? And actually, Anselm of Canterbury didn't really like that idea. And there are others in the Western tradition that would simply want to, uh, you know, derive the Holy Spirit in sort of equal measure, if you will, from both father and son. But uh, Anselm of Havelberg, following Augustine, um, said that the Holy Spirit is found to proceed rightly and principally from the father. Uh, Rightly and principally from the father. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, that's actually a quote from, hmm, you'll, you'll have to bear with me. That might be a uh, quote from Augustine and not uh, Anselm of Havelberg himself. But there was, there was considerable agreement on that point, which I think is, 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 is good doctrine. From the Anselms, we move to a very interesting character in medieval theology, which is Peter Abelard. Peter Abelard, um, you know, came after Anselm. Anselm was born in 1033 and, um, and died in 1109. Peter Abelard was uh, a generation or two after him. Maybe it could be a generation, depending on how long you would count. Uh, but he was born in 1079. So still early, the early part of uh, medieval era. Died in 1142. And Peter Abelard, um, and a lot of these theologians that we'll be touching on uh, today actually were, were from the, the French area. Um, he, was a, he was a logician, extremely intelligent man. Uh, and in fact, when he was lecturing in, in France, I think chiefly, if I'm not mistaken, at Notre Dame, although I don't know if there's other places he, he lectured as well, hundreds would flock to hear him. And in fact, hundreds of like leading church people and bishops, etc. In fact, many of the leading men of the next generation, such as Peter Lombard, would come and and listen to him. But he is notable um, because for for a number of reasons, one is which that he fell into deep moral and ethical compromise. He, um, in fact, fell in love with the niece of the canon of Notre Dame, uh, a girl by the name of Heloise, with whom uh, he had a child. And um, Abelard offered to marry her, but 
Uh, she thought it better to enter a convent for the sake of, uh, of Abelard's career. And Fulbert, who was the, the canon of Notre Dame and her uncle, he ordered the castration of Abelard. Um, and uh, who then retired to a monastery. But he kept up his writing with Eloise. So it's a, it's, a, it's a very tragic love story, if you will. Moral, you know, moral compromise, but also love. And, and, and of course, this tragedy of being, being cast out and his fall from grace. And so a, a very, uh, very kind of profound story. Peter Abelard kept, he kept writing. And, uh, and he, was, he was quite influential, of course, especially because of his previous standing. But he got into trouble. He wasn't done getting in trouble. He, uh, except for maybe this time it wasn't his fault. He was actually brought on charges before the church for heresy on the, on the doctrine of the Trinity. And uh, people like William of St. Thierry, and Bernard of Clairvaux, who we'll talk about uh, in some detail here yet, um, opposed him vigorously. In fact, one of Abelard's uh, great works was called uh, simply Theology. And uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, he, he labeled it stupidology. Lit literally, that's, that's he, he's, he uh, and we'll get into we'll get into a little bit more why. But uh, Bernard of Clairvaux actually was was himself would become a very uh, very influential and leading figure. Uh, but he he was not too impressed with Peter Abelard and and his I guess what P Bernard viewed as going beyond scripture. Now you're going to see and I love Bernard of Clairvaux, but you're going to see that that's a little bit funny to you know to to have that view that. You know, he went beyond, beyond scripture, but it was more of the issue, not so much of going beyond scripture that Bernard of Clairvaux took issue with Peter Abelard, but more of the issue that it was rationalistic. Um, it was trying to, instead of leading into the, the experience and the mystery and the ineffability of the Trinity, it was trying to comprehend and wrestle down the doctrine of the Trinity that uh, I think Bernard uh, took issue with <laughs> stupidology. Wow. Uh, what were the heresy charges? Well, here, here were a few of them. First of all, that um, the charges, and this was a summation, all right? This is, these are not quotes from Abelard, but the summation uh, and the, of the charges of heresy was that he had stated that the Father had complete power, the Son had some power, and the Holy Spirit had no power. So if you actually believed that, would that be heresy? Absolutely. He also, um, the, there was also the, uh, the statement that he believed that the Holy Spirit might be the soul of the world. Now there, the issue was that Abelard had seen in Plato's writing in Timaeus, this idea of mind, intelligence, and world soul and had looked on that as, a, as some sort of like a, a pagan view of, uh, of Trinity that was yet not the right view. And, and, um, and he actually had taken pains to state, listen, this is not the biblical view. 
but he wanted to see some sort of reference to that. He wanted to build bridges to that, and, and that was a major charge against him. And then another charge, kind of in connection with the first one, is that to the Father become, uh, pertains power, but not wisdom and kindness. The reason that these charges came to him is that Peter Abelard had been building off some of the doctrine that we have in Augustine, which we call appropriations, which you've, you've heard me speak about probably in the last lecture, if not even before that, where you have different yeah, appropriations, different ways of understanding analogically the relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But that these are not exclusive and that, and that they don't describe the, the, spirit, uh, the triune God in the way that the scriptures do, which is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're, 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 you're building on that. You're, you're trying to describe that. You're trying to develop the implications of that. And so, for instance, Abelard had, you know, building on Augustine, had stated that uh, the Father, um, you know, is the power of God, that the Son is the wisdom of God, and the Holy Spirit is the kindness or the goodness of God. And again, Augustine had said things that were very similar, but because of the political climate, um, and because perhaps Peter Abelard's views had not been clearly communicated by others, um, writers that I have read state that actually his own views are, are, are pretty clear, that he is not saying that the Son doesn't have power, or that you know, the Son isn't, isn't good, uh, but these things were, were relayed, and he was brought up on charges, and he was actually condemned. He was actually condemned in spite of the fact that, uh, as best we can figure by looking at original documents, he, he, he was not a heretic by any means. And in fact, uh, Nell, I mentioned earlier, he, he actually points out that Bernard of Clairvaux said things that were very, very similar, if not exactly the same. Uh, it, was, it was well understood. And in fact, when Abelard was saying things like this, he understood these to be things that were found in the early church fathers. He understood himself not to be saying anything um, particularly novel. That was interesting, an interesting controversy within the medieval church. Bernard of Clairvaux, moving to him, um, he really represents him and uh, William of St. Thierry. They represent sort of a, a mystical, experiential reaction against what was the, you know, the, uh, the growth of scholasticism within building on sort of Anselm and his view within the medieval church, which was certainly carried out and carried further by, by Peter Abelard and which would be carried out further uh, by, by, by Aquinas, although very carefully. Maybe, maybe Abelard was not always extremely careful. That's disputed. Uh, Aquinas certainly, certainly was. Bernard of Clairvaux, William of St. Thierry, you know, they, they look at the scholasticism, this idea of you know, this rationalism that tries to wrestle down and completely understand and completely explain everything of the Trinity. Of course, not that Peter Abelard or Anselm would have um, portrayed things that way. And they go the other way. 
they, they want to experience the Trinity, but for them, it's a very inner, inner thing, inner, inner experience, mystical experience. And I want to read some, some from Bernard of Clairvaux because uh, he, is, he is fascinating. I think he's worth, he's worth listening to in his explanation of this kind of this mystic understanding of God and the triune God. First of all, uh, William of St. Thierry, who was a little bit before Bernard of, of, uh, of Clairvaux, he says this, our love for God is our participation in the love, which is God. And he's referring to the Holy Spirit there. Or our love for God is our participation in God's loving himself, which is in the last analysis, God's being himself. Let me read that for you again. Our love for God is our participation in the love, which is God, or our love for God is our participation in God's loving himself, which is in the last analysis, God being himself. So there you've got a number of connections, both to the essence of God and his divine simplicity, namely that God is love. He is his attributes. But you also have the fact that um, in that you've got maybe all three persons kind of lightly alluded to um, in the form of love, which and we'll get back to that because, well, maybe we'll build on it here with, with Bernard of Clairvaux, but we'll certainly come back to it with Richard of St. Victor. So. To Bernard of Clairvaux, I've mentioned that he, had, he, was, he was interested in the, in the experience of God, the experience of the Trinity. And in fact, one of the places that this is so beautifully illustrated is in his commentary on the Song of Solomon. Now, the Song of Solomon is in its initial form a Hebrew erotic love poem. And in that form and in its, you, what you might call its literal sense, you, some of you may even be aware that, uh, that you know, young, young Hebrew students weren't allowed to read it until they were a certain age, right? Because it refers to marital love. Nevertheless, from the early church fathers forward, it was well understood that this was also uh, a, a metaphor of Christ and the church. And it, and it can be read that way. And, and I personally believe it can be read that way and ought to be read that way. I, I personally believe that though it has that form of a, of a Hebrew erotic love poem, and it does, that uh, if we rightly understand the reality, the heavenly reality to which marital love points, that it is fitting uh, to, to understand this in, in, you know, for our, in our love for God, or more specifically, the love that Christ and his church has. So, just with that little background, in his commentary on the Song of Solomon, uh, it begins, Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 2. So, the beginning of the entire book says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Let him Listen to this. Interesting language. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And on that short statement, Bernard of Clairvaux wrote seven sermons. Now, granted, they were, they were, they were relatively short sermons. They weren't, they weren't 45-minute sermons. 
But he wrote seven sermons on that, on that statement. Um, and one of the things that he noted from the outset, I, I won't get into, into all of those sermons, although I was uh, reviewing them again today. I, I, think they're, I think they're actually quite profound. There, there are places that it's a little fanciful, but I do. I do think it's worth reading. I think it's worth considering. And I, I myself, my own spirit was greatly uh, blessed in reading it again. Uh, some of it again today. But he notes something interesting about these verses. He says, uh, why doesn't it say, let him kiss me with his mouth? Why does it say, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth? No one ever talks like that. So that that's, that's very strange. And so, he, uh, and so he argues, among other things, that the kiss of the kisses of his mouth actually refers to, first of all, the fact that the father loves the son, and that's the first kiss, right? There's this divine love that the father has for the son. And then the kisses of the son's mouth, um, the kiss of the kiss is actually the Holy Spirit to the church. So let me read to you some of what he says. Maybe I'll, before I, I read this, maybe I'll mention one other thing, because you're wondering, okay, this is, this is seven sermons worth, right? The other thing that he mentions, and I think this is, this is profound too, uh, he mentions that there are different kisses in the scripture. There's the kiss of the feet, there's the kiss of the hand, and there's the, and there's the kiss of the mouth. And so the kiss of the feet is when we first come to Christ, and where we, we bow prostrate before Christ, and just in, in absolute subjection, because we, we need anybody that will save us. We're holding his feet, kissing his feet, right? Save me, save me. We're in that despair. That's, that's our coming. But then we're raised up at a certain point to understand some of the blessings that we have in the son. And, and so we, we are enabled to, to kiss his hand, to have that form of fellowship with him where we receive his blessings. But then he says that there is a few of us who may be raised up. And again, this is drawing from his mystical experience with you know, with God, his times in prayer, where he says that there may be such a joy and an experience of, of God in Christ, that there are times in which we, we have the kiss of his mouth. And so uh, that's, that's part of his seven sermons. But let me read to you from what he means by, by the kiss here. And I'll read a couple of selections. In human society, the expressions kiss me or give me a kiss are familiar enough, but no one ever thinks of adding with your mouth or with the kiss of your mouth. Why? Because when persons embrace in this manner, they present their lips to each other as a matter of course and without it being expressly asked. For instance, the evangelist in narrating how the traitor was permitted to salute the Lord simply says, and he kissed him and does not add with his mouth or with the kiss of his mouth. And such is the custom of all writers and all speakers. The threefold distinction of kisses therefore corresponds to three states of the soul or three stages of her progress, fully known and understand only by those who have learned them by experience. So as I mentioned, feet, the hand, the mouth. I will explain more clearly, he states, and going on a little further, why I call the first and second of those favors by the name of kisses. We all know that a kiss is a sign of peace. Now, as Holy Scripture says, our sins separate us from God. If then we break down this wall of separation, there shall be peace. Hence, when we remove by penance the obstruction of sin and are reconciled, how can I more suitably describe the forgiveness we obtain than by naming it as the kiss of peace. Yes, it is only the feet we should now presume to kiss. That is to say, our penance ought to be humble and shy as making reparation for the pride 
of our former transgressions. But when later on we have been admitted to a certain sweet familiarity by a more abundant infusion of grace, whereby we are enabled to live more purely and to converse more worthily with God, then we may lift up our heads with greater confidence in order to kiss the hand of our benefactor, as is the custom among men. Forgive me for moving backwards a little bit before moving forwards, but now here, let me move forward and explain the, the kiss of the mouth. Uh, he states, Therefore, the knowledge... Uh, I'm going to go back one, one little bit here. This should not seem fanciful, fanciful, because if I am right in regarding the father as the mouth that kisses, and the son as the mouth that is kissed, I cannot be very far wrong in understanding by the kiss itself the divine spirit, who is the imper imperturbable peace of the father and son, the everlasting bond, the undivided love, the indivisible unity. One may here object and say, therefore, the knowledge of the Holy Ghost is not essential to our happiness, because when Christ declares that eternal life consisted in knowing the Father and the Son, he said nothing of the third person, nothing explicitly, I grant you. But when the Father and the Son are perfectly known, known also must assuredly be the Holy Spirit, who is the common goodness of the two. Even one human being cannot be fully known to another so long as it is uncertain whether his disposition or is good or evil. Yet even when the Savior said, this is eternal life that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent, of course, quoting from John 17, if this mission demonstrates the goodwill both of the Father, who so lo lovingly sent his Son, and of the Son, who so freely obeyed his Father, even then I say he was not silent respecting the Spirit. For he made mention of that infinite, loving kindness, common of both. So here you see, some of the building up of this theology of the unity of the Holy Spirit as a bond of goodness or love between both. Consequently, he says, the spouse in requesting a kiss prays for the grace of this threefold knowledge, so much at least as is possible for her to receive while still in the flesh. And he then was referring to the kiss of the mouth, the plenitude, he says, of God. Uh, so there we see that Bernard is willing to go beyond the bare minimum of scripture, um, but from an experiential perspective rather than a scholastic perspective. We move to Hugh and Richard of St. Victor, as those who are also prominent in the doctrine of the Trinity within the medieval age, the Victorines. And uh, they seem very much to combine the scholasticism of a Anselm of Canterbury or Abelard with, uh, to some degree, the, the mysticism, although not to, say, to the same degree, of someone like Bernard. So uh, Hugh of St. Victor was 1096 to 1140, so very much um, a peer of Bernard of Clairvaux. Richard of St. Victor was a little bit later. He followed after Hugh of St. Victor. We actually do not know his birth, but he died in 1173. And Richard of St. Victor, uh, on whom I will focus here for a little bit, is known for his work on the Trinity, which is a fascinating work that for a long time, um, only one book of, I believe, six books in this work uh, was only made, was, was made known. and. That part of the work is particularly well known because it is a demonstration and a proof of the Trinity of God from the perspective of love. 
he proves the Trinity based on the idea of love. And, uh, but what is interesting is that as part of the larger work, he actually has a very systematic and very scholastic view of building this, this, uh, this view up to the play, place where he can then argue on the basis of, of love, which is part of a, a larger view of, uh, of goodness. And this is important to note that in the history of systematic theology, love has been seen as sort of that choice part of goodness, but definitely comprehended underneath the category of goodness. So reading from Richard on, uh, of St. Victor, well, true and highest love cannot be absent for fullness of all goodness is found. Since nothing is better or more perfect than a charity love. Yet, none is said to possess charity love in the truest sense of the word if he loves himself exclusively. It is thus necessary that love be aimed at someone else in order to be charity love. If a multiplicity of persons is absent, there can be no place for charity love. Perhaps one can object if, even if there was one single person in the very divinity, nothing would prevent it from having charity love aimed at one of its own creatures. Indeed, it would certainly happen. However, this divinity could not conceive supreme charity love towards a created person. Charity love expressed by him who supremely loves someone else who should not be supremely loved would be a disorderly charity love. And it is impossible that disorderly charity love be found in that highly wise goodness. Finally, a divine person could not have shown, could not, could not have shown Supreme charity love towards another person who was not worthy of supreme love. Besides, in order for charity love to be supremely perfect and the highest possible, it must be so great not to be able to admit any other greater love. And it must be such not to allow a better one. Now, as long as one loves no one else as himself, his personal love aimed at himself demonstrates that he has not yet attained the highest level of charity love. A divine person, however, would have no one to love as worthily as himself if he had, had absolutely no other person with his same dignity. No person apart from God would be gifted with the same dignity as a divine person. Consequently, in order for fullness of charity love to reside in the very divinity, a divine person had to be united with another person of his same dignity and thus also divine. Many words to say something relatively simple, actually. He's just, he's, he's, he's just building a tiny little piece at a time. And sometimes by building just a tiny piece at a time, we sort of get lost in what he's saying. But he's saying essentially that if God is good and everybody that ever conceives of God believes him to be good, what's the highest good? Well, it's this charity love. And so if this highest good is charity love, and this is what defines God, then he must have something to love. And that love that he must love cannot be a creature because the creature does not have the full dignity of himself. And so you could conceive of a higher love than that creature that theoretically he loves. So it must therefore be that he loves in a certain sense himself, but another divine object, namely the son. And he goes on to claim that that love too must be perfect and full. Therefore, that perfect fullness must also be 
the, the Holy Spirit. Now, another thing that Richard of St. Victor does in his treatise, but it's, it's a little hard to wrap your mind around it, and I, I am not confident enough with his argument to, to summarize it, is he argues that there cannot be four persons in the Trinity. And this is, you could arrive at this viewpoint by any of the analogies that we've looked at already that posit the Holy Spirit as between the Father and the Son. All right? Not only that the Holy Spirit is, proceeds from the Father and the Son or from the Father and through the Son, but then in a certain sense, he is that unity which binds them together. Because if he is that unity which binds them together in whatever analogy you use, love, goodness, peace, connection, whatever, that then you have a, as back to Gregory Nazianzen, you have a rest in this triunity. You're not going to have a fourth person. You're going to have this fullness in the three. To finish, graphic doctor, together the angelic doctor. <laughs> Bonaventure was a Franciscan, Aquinas, a Dominican. They were roughly contemporaries. Bonaventure born in 1217, Aquinas in 1225, both of them dying the same year. 1274. Bonaventure was an Italian who studied, studied under Alexander of Hales. And uh, he, was, he was very strong, um, very much like Bernard on sort of the experience of, of God, though still quite, still quite ordered in his thinking. He was not quite so enamored with what was the current rediscovery of Aristotle as Aquinas would be. Aquinas is heavily impacted by Aristotle and all of his, all of his categories. But the Bonaventure, uh, not, not nearly so. One thing that is notable about Bonaventure, who is one of my, my favorite Trinitarian authors and theologians, is that he, he argues from or derives his theology of almost everything from the starting point of the Trinity. I have stated in one of my early lectures that I do believe that it is right. Even though I love to emphasize the Trinity in everything, I do think it is right to begin with the unity of God. All right. The essence of God. And I mentioned that in relationship to the systematic theology that I'm teaching the children. And I'm developing for that. Um, but I do really appreciate Bonaventure. He is one of only two theologians I've ever come across who start their systematic theology with the Trinity. So that I appreciate that greatly. But what is interesting is that not only does he talk a great deal about the Trinity, but he, he lets his doctrine of the Trinity influence almost everything else. Developing a, a number of series of triads, but not only triads, he's actually he actually has quite a significant developed system of, uh, of, of twelves and fours and, 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 he, and he relates us all to some degree to the Trinity. Seven as well, but he's, he's impacted by this symbolism of the numbers in Scripture. But let me read to you from some of his commentary in the Breviloquium, which is a short systematic theology on creation. And this will give you an idea of how his triadic Trinitarian thinking impacts 
the rest of his thinking. Uh, he says, the utterly perfect principle from whom flows the perfection of all things must act by his own power and law and for himself as an end, for in his action he needs none by himself. Hence, he must be the threefold cause of all creatures, efficient, exemplary, and final. And I believe he, he views that as a Trinitarian triad. As a result, every creature must bear the same threefold reference to the first cause. For everyone exists by virtue of the efficient cause, is patterned after the exemplary cause, and ordained toward the final cause. For this reason, every creature is one, true, and good. That, too, is a Trinitarian triad. Has mode, species, and order. And has measure, distinct existence, and weight. For weight is defined as an orderly tendency. All this applies to every creature in general, whether material, spiritual, or composite, as is human nature. A little later, he says, this should be understood as follows. Since all things follow from the first and utterly perfect principle, who is omnipotent, all-wise, and all-beneficent, that again is a triadic, uh, a Trinitarian triad, their production must reflect the same three attributes or perfections. Therefore, the divine operation which built the fabric of the universe was threefold. Creation, properly reflecting omnipotence, division, reflecting wisdom, and provision, reflecting a most generous bounty. He's talking about the creation of the world in Genesis 1. Let me read one last quote. God could have brought all of this together in a single, or sorry, he could have brought this all about in a single instant. He chose instead to act through time and step by step, and this for three reasons. First, there was to be a distinct and clear manifestation of power, wisdom, and goodness. Trinitarian triad. Second, there was to be fitting correspondence between the days or times and the operations. Third, the succession of days was to prefigure all future ages in the same way as at creation, the seeds of all future beings were planted. And notice there that Bonaventure has, if it's not already clear, he has a nested triad. He has an initial triad that bears relationship to the Trinity in which a, a second triad flows out of it, which too reflects the Trinity. And we're going to come back to that when we get to the end of our lectures, because I think that Bonaventure is profound. And I think he gives us, uh, if not answers for how to think about the world, in a Trinitarian fashion, I think he gives us a template, at least. And with this, we're going to move to Aquinas as our last note. Not that the Middle Ages or Trinitarian thinking ended with Aquinas, but he is the leading figure in the medieval age. And, uh, and he presents in many ways sort of the sum of thinking on, uh, on the Trinity, at least in an ordered, rational scholastic or systematic way. If you have ever read uh, Aquinas, who is called the angelic doctor and, and his great Summa Theologica, or maybe the Summa Contra Gentiles, he has an, a number of other works. I've read also on evil, which is, which is a great, yeah, great uh, contemplation on the nature of evil. But he has a very particular way in which he uh, addresses things. It, it's fascinating. First of all, he starts with a question. And then what he does is he states what are the possible 
objection. So right up front, even before he gives his answer, he states what all the best options of the bad answers could be. Okay? So what he does is he states his, his opponents, if you will, his opponents' best wrong answers. Then he answers it as best as he know how, knows how. Sometimes a very simple answer, sometimes a, quite an extended one. And then he replies to all the objections. Very systematic, very thorough. This is why he is called the angelic doctor. He reaches a pinnacle of, as I mentioned, of the ordering of the doctrine of the Trinity. And, um, and even though I am not going to go into much detail at all here now about Aquinas, much of what he states is going to inform and has informed for the rest of time, uh, the rest of church history, the dogmatic view of the Trinity. And so we'll, we'll go back to a lot of what he stated when it comes to dogmatics and try to make some very careful distinctions. It's hard to do better than Aquinas when it comes to making those distinctions. Uh, I might, maybe, I might point out some places where I think that maybe the balance was not quite right in Aquinas' views. As I've mentioned, I, I personally appreciate uh, Bonaventure's approach or style more than Aquinas, but Aquinas was, um, was a great, great thinker, and his doctrine has hardly been bettered in the history of the Christian church. And I think I'll end there. Let me, uh, let me pray. 